This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack podcast. So after months of waiting, opposition leader Peter Dutton today announced the Liberal Party's position on a voice to Parliament. He said the Liberals are going to oppose it and he is going to actively campaign against it. So where does that leave us now? Well, we've got the Prime Minister coming up. That's right. We've got Anthony Albanese coming up on this podcast, and I'm going to ask him what this means for the referendum. Also, later, we're talking financial abuse. We know one in six women experience it, but nobody talks about it. So how do you know if it's happening to you? First, though. The Liberal Party uh, resolved today to say yes to constitutional recognition for Indigenous Australians, but there was a resounding no to the Prime Minister's Canberra voice. On Triple J. Yeah, you just heard Peter Dutton there announcing the Liberals are going to oppose an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Look, the Nationals had already confirmed that they were against this and people had suspected that that's where the Liberals were going to land. In a bit, we are going to have the Prime Minister on, so you're going to hear what Anthony Albanese's reaction to this is. I imagine he was suspecting this would be the opposition leader's view. Peter Darton said there should be symbolic recognition of First Nations people in the Constitution and a legislated voice that would focus on local and regional voices, but not a national voice, one that's enshrined in the Constitution. Not all the Liberals are on board with this, though. One of those who's come out strongly against the Liberal Party's position that was announced today is Tasmanian Liberal MP Bridget Archer. She's saying, nah, she's going to vote yes. And she's with us right now. Bridget Archer, thanks for joining us on Hack. It's a pleasure. How do you feel about your party voting today to oppose the Indigenous Voice to Parliament? Look, I feel really disappointed, but uh, ultimately I don't think I'm surprised and I don't really think Australians will be surprised. I think we've seen a kind of leaning towards that position for many months now, so I think it's probably just confirmation of what people suspected would probably happen. So what was the party room meeting like today? Because it went for a few hours. Was there anger? Were people frustrated with the discussion? No, I don't think so. Look, I think it was pretty respectful, um, as you would expect. And, you know, there's a range of views and I think there there's a crossover, you know. I think um, ultimately a lot of people agree on a lot of things um, and certainly there's broad agreement that there should be constitutional recognition of First Nations people. But I think there's a divergence of views around whether there should be Um, a voice or a constitutionally enshrined um, voice. But I think, you know, there is broad agreement on issues like the need to, you know, change outcomes for First Nations people and to, um, to, to do more. To explain to people this new position for the Liberal Party is not binding for backbenchers like yourself, but shadow ministers will be bound to support the opposition's new view or their view now. Uh, Are there senior Liberals in the shadow ministry who are also against this party view but aren't able to speak up? Look, I can't really speak on behalf of other people, but I would make the point that, you know, we talk a big game in the Liberal Party uh, that backbenchers are always free uh, to vote however they see um, fit, and I've exercised that on um, on occasion, um, so it, it really um, that n- that notion of binding votes really applies to two front benches. So um, I can't speak 
for them and I can't speak for the conversations that are had at a shadow um, cabinet level, but I just find it, you know, really very disappointing, I guess. What do you think of the way Peter Dutton's framed this debate? Because he's basically saying the Prime Minister isn't consulting widely enough or hasn't to this point. What do you think of how the Liberal Party has consulted with First Nations communities and leaders? Well, I think that we've been talking about this for a really long time. And, you know, the Uluru statement from the heart goes back several years uh, now. I think there has been an extensive amount of consultation. When we were in government, we did an extensive amount of work. Do you think the consultation that the Liberal Party's done has been more rigorous than the government's? Well, I think in some cases it's been the same, you know, and I I sort of, um, you know, I look to people like Ken Wyatt and the work that Ken Wyatt did in in the last term of Parliament And of course, there might be a divergence of views about the best way to achieve something. But we had uh, many years in government to do that or to do something and we didn't. Uh, The government, now government, took this issue and their intention to hold a referendum to the Australian people at the election, which they won. So I think they have an electoral mandate for a referendum and ultimately, The decision of that referendum is for the people of Australia to decide, but there's a lot at stake, I think, now. I think the conversation has moved to a point where, you know, it's really important. A lot of that work has been done and and I think we are at a crossroads at a nation where we can choose to step forward together and um, in unity Um, and I think that's what we should do. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Liberal MP Bridget Archer about Peter Dutton's big announcement today that the Liberal Party is not going to support the government's voice to parliament proposal and will campaign against the yes vote. Bridget Archer, are you worried that this could be the nail in the coffin for this referendum, that the Liberal Party campaigning no will divide the country and ultimately it's going to lead to Australia voting no? Look, I hope not and I do have confidence in the Australian people and in the same way as I had confidence going into the same-sex marriage plebiscite um, and all of the unpleasantness and division and, you know, unnecessary angst that people had to go through in the lead-up to that, I feel very much the same about this. And I think we can choose to be positive. We can choose to have a positive narrative about this. We can choose to to choose unity, to choose purpose, to choose to walk uh, together with um, First Nations people. And I think, uh, you know, I have confidence that the Australian people will will think about that. Well, are you worried then that this could be the nail in the coffin for the Liberal Party, that if Australia votes yes, that the Liberal Party's lost all hope going forward? Well, I think the Liberal Party does have some challenges and the Liberal Party has some lessons to learn. Um, There are very strong lessons to come out of the 2022 election and I think there are further lessons to learn out of the Aston by-election on the weekend. But the Liberal Party has to decide whether they are going to listen to those lessons, whether they're going to listen to the messages that are clearly being sent by the Australian people. I mean, this notion that people want the Liberal Party to go further to the right is not borne out by any sort of evidence. You know, 
people that have lost their seats, Liberal Party members that have lost their seats in elections, have not lost them to people that are further to the right than them. They have lost them to more centrist or progressive candidates. The evidence is writ large there that uh, the Liberal Party has to make a decision whether they are going to return uh, representing the views of Australians or whether they are going to remain wedded to this tribal ideology that has developed over time that um, is not resonating with with voters. Will you cross the floor on this issue, Bridget? Look, I um, will campaign actively for um, the Yes campaign. My view has not changed on that. I do not support this position. I will not in any way attach myself to to a vote no in relation um, to this. So if that requires um, that I cross the floor, then yes. And it is always my position that I will come to this place. I made a commitment to my constituents that I will come to this place and I will do my best to be a genuine representative for them to try and reflect their views and to do what I think is right first. And I will always put that above party considerations because it's why we're here. It's the people that um, send us here and it's the expectation that they have that we will represent their views first. All right, Liberal MP Bridget Archer, appreciate you coming on Hack. Thank you. Hack. On Triple J. Yeah, and we've got a few messages coming through. Someone says Bridget Archer should be opposition leader. She's the only one left with common sense. Another person says, I think the Liberal Party is more divided than Australia at this point. A lot of opinions on this. It's time to speak to the big gun about it, though. We have the Prime Minister of Australia with us now, Anthony Albanese. Welcome back to Hack. Good afternoon. Good to be with you. Prime Minister, a referendum has never succeeded in Australia without bipartisan support. You've said yourself you wanted bipartisanship to give it a better chance. How are you going to get this across the line if you've got the opposition leader, the nationals, people on all sides of politics out there actively campaigning against it? Well, the decision today by Peter Dutton is very disappointing but it shouldn't come as a surprise given his negative comments at every opportunity that he's had uh, since he's been opposition leader and his history of uh, not uh, even being prepared to sit in the parliament when the apology was given to stolen generations. So it it is disappointing, but uh, the fact is that I believe that Australians of goodwill uh, will uh, vote yes uh, between sometime between October and December uh, this year. Uh, Australians, every time they attend an event, whether it's a sporting event or a church or a local community event, uh, and indeed even the parliament, uh, every day we acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of the land uh, on which we live and we pay respects and recognition in our nation's constitution is unfinished business. It's not a radical concept. It is simply acknowledging the great privilege 
that we have of sharing this continent with the oldest continuous culture on Earth. So Prime Minister Peter Dutton has said that he supports a legislated voice, but not one enshrined in the Constitution. And he also says he supports symbolic recognition of First Nations people in the Constitution. Is that what he's been asking for in the meetings you've been having with him? Because you've had a few meetings with Peter Dutton. Yeah, look, I've met with Peter Dutton in good faith on seven occasions. Uh, The... Coalition said that they supported uh, legislation and that they supported constitutional recognition at various times. Uh, They've just come out of government less than a year ago uh, where they held office for nine years and Peter Dutton was a senior cabinet minister during that period. But, Prime Minister, Uh, I'm wondering, is it worth changing the wording of the question if it means getting the Liberal Party over the line? Well, there's no indication of that. Look, I gave a speech at Gama uh, last July and I put forward draft constitutional words and uh, the uh, process concluded the first part of it and now there's a committee looking at uh, the legislation that was introduced last Thursday. Now, over that that long period of of some eight months, uh, the coalition, no... Liberal or or National Party leaders uh, came forward with any alternatives or any suggestions in spite of the fact that I made it very clear it was just draft wording. But importantly, this actually isn't about the politicians. This is about your listeners. Every Australian will have one vote. And today when Peter Dutton was asked who he consulted with in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, Uh, He spoke about places that he'd visited rather than people that he'd actually consulted with. Now, when I stood up uh, in the uh, the blue room of Parliament House and put forward the the wording a couple of weeks ago that we'd put in the legislation, I was with Noel Pearson. Noel Pearson, of course, supported it. He couldn't make the meeting. But Ken White, the former Aboriginal Affairs Minister, from the Morrison government with Linda Burney and Pat Dodson and Marcia Langton and Thomas Mayer. A lot of First Nations leaders were with you and they were supporting you. That's that's for sure. And I mean, you know, Peter Dutton is saying he's consulted with communities. Prime Minister, we've got a text message here from a listener who probably represents um, a, a big number of people who say, I'll vote yes for Aboriginal recognition in the Constitution. I'll vote no to a voice in Parliament. What does Jacinta Price and Warren Mundell and a lot of other Aboriginal people think about this, they say no. There are people out there who say they would vote yes for recognition if the referendum was split in two. Would you consider splitting it in two? No, because we've actually consulted with Indigenous Australians. This hasn't come from a couple of people sitting around, politicians coming up with an idea. What people need to know is that the history of this and there was a constitutional convention for First Nations people uh, held. There were uh, literally fed into that process uh, 1,200 people uh, invited to Uluru, hundreds of people signing the Uluru Statement from the Heart that came up with the fact that they wanted constitutional recognition and they wanted it through a voice. And all the voice is is a body that won't have the power of veto, it won't be a funding body, but a body that says where policies are going to impact 
on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. They should be consulted. This is about good manners going forward. And yes, uh, there is not um, a unanimous view in the Indigenous community, but there's no reason why that should be the case more than there's unanimous views about issues in any section of so society. So what if it fails, Prime Minister? But it Minister? is overwhelming. Well, I'm, I will be, along with uh, the uh, Indigenous leadership, uh, a vast majority of this country, along with business organisations, the trade union movement, uh, faith organisations, uh, non-government organisations, everyone from the Salvation Army to ACOS, uh, sporting organisations uh, campaigning very strongly to, to do this because uh, if not now, when? When are we going to recognise uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people how are in you going, our constitution? Sorry, Prime Minister. How are you going to win over those um, who are against this proposal, though? Because they're not all Liberal and Nationals voters, right? There are, like you uh, said before, some within First Nations communities who are against this proposal. They don't think it goes far enough or there's been enough consultation. How will you win over those people? Well, this constitutional consultation, of course, has been going on for, for decades now. Uh, going back to uh, the, the, the last century, literally, uh, there was discussion about constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Now, it, it is difficult to get change. We'll continue to argue the case and explain why it's important and and to the, the view that says um, we support recognition but we don't support the voice. So I'd ask people to think about this, uh, that uh, we need to listen to what overwhelmingly Indigenous people themselves have come forward with. Now, it, it, it's not unanimous, just the same as if you had any other group, you know, not everyone who lives in my electorate uh, votes for me or, or agrees with, with my position. Not everyone yeah. who follows a particular football team votes Labor or Liberal. That, that's the nature of, of it. And you, you have to respect uh, the fact that people come to different views. Okay. But overwhelmingly, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are saying we will get better results when we're consulted and what we know from experience is that that's the case. Okay. Programs like Indigenous Rangers, Justice Reinvestment, Community Health Programs, all are the most effective programs because Indigenous people have had that involvement and, and you get better solutions when you work with people. And we will be speaking about that in, in the months ahead for sure. Prime Minister, on another issue, young Australians are struggling right now. Uh, you'd be aware of this. So many can't afford a roof over their heads. They're lining up for free food. What's your government doing to help young Australians right now? Look, it's really tough and we're aware that inflation is having a real impact. Uh, one of the things that, that we are doing is, is in the housing area. We have a legislation before the parliament to create a Housing Australia Future Fund. Uh, that's, that will provide that's for houses years away, Prime Minister, and people can't afford their rent now. They're struggling now and they're telling us they can't get by and they need direct support now. What are you going to do about it? Well, the support that we're providing just last week, we put in a submission to the Fair Work Commission 
uh, for a, a wage increase for people who are on uh, the minimum wage. We, we did that last year and that led to a, an increase. You, you might remember that was an issue during the election campaign. So protecting people's living standards is about wages, it's about secure work, but it's also about helping where you can. Uh, so cheaper pharmaceuticals came in on, on January 1. Prime Minister, Fee they're saying tape. it's not enough. They're telling us every Fee day Fee it's I'm, not I'm enough. Aware, I'm aware of that, but they also would be aware that you can't click your fingers and, and change the whole economy and undo a decade of inaction in uh, overnight. So fee-free TAFE, I've spoken to young Australians at TAFEs uh, right around the country, uh, some 180,000 of them, who for them that's making an enormous difference mm. because it's meaning that they're able to get into uh, employment Look, and with hope of a secure work. We're going to have to leave it there, Prime Minister. But Anthony Arvanese, thank you very much for making the time to come on Hack. Hey, we're also still waiting on that DJ set, by the way. Remember before the election, <laughs> you promised that? Indeed, I, I'd, I'd be very happy to do that. It was uh, <laughs> it was an attendance on Hack, indeed, uh, years ago that led to a hosting of Rage, which was uh, one ticked off the bucket list. Oh, way back about ten years ago. All right, we'll, we'll so give you. We'll I'd give be you very a bit. Happy to come in. We'll give you a bit and, of time uh, to put your playlist together, there. Prime Minister. Um, thanks I'm for coming on. I'm constantly putting together playlists, so <laughs> that won't be a problem. Thank you, Anthony Avanese. Thanks for joining us. Hack. I didn't really know the signs to look for. You only really were taught about the physical violence on Triple J. Does it matter to you who's in charge of finances in a relationship? Like, would you give up your job if your partner asked you to? Money can be a fraught topic in relationships, but for abusers, it's a super powerful form of control. Financial or economic abuse isn't really talked about a lot, but according to new data, it's really common in society. Our reporter Shalala Madora has spoken to two young women who've lived through this. And just a warning, this story discusses abuse and sexual assault. I was quite young. I was 23 when I entered the relationship. Lucy, which is not her real name, thought domestic violence was purely physical. So when her now ex-partner started abusing her just weeks into their relationship, she didn't immediately realise something was wrong. From the start, he had trouble hearing no. Over the course of her relationship, Lucy suffered from emotional abuse, manipulation, control and sexual assault. And one of the biggest tools of abuse for Lucy's ex was money. I didn't have any access to the bank account. And if I even wanted to get a coffee, I needed to ask him for it. Lucy wasn't working at the time. He wasn't too fond of the idea of me getting a job. The financial abuse got worse after Lucy gave birth to their baby. I had an extremely strict grocery budget. So it was $70 a week. And out of that came nappies and one or two formula containers. He would also come to the store with me to make sure I wasn't buying anything extra. Lucy's ex used money as a way to control every aspect of Lucy's life. If I said no to him to sleep with him, I knew, and he made it extremely clear with his actions and his words, that he just wouldn't speak to me then. I would get silent treatment. In other words, if Lucy didn't have sex with him, he'd refuse to speak to her and that meant she wouldn't have access to any of their money. 
he wouldn't transfer the extra money I needed for my child's formula, clothing, dummies, nappies, unless I gave in to his demands. Even after Lucy left the relationship, her ex continued his financial abuse through limiting child support payments. It again became something he could control and whether it would be sent to me. Last month, for the first time ever, the Australian Bureau of Statistics collected data on financial or economic abuse. It's way more common than you might think. Here's Michelle Ducat from the Bureau. We found that one in six women and one in 13 men had experienced economic abuse by a partner. Economic or financial abuse can be directly restricting finances, like what happened with Lucy, but it can also be sabotaging your ability to work or even study. He would try and get me to call in sick to work quite a few times. Zara, also not her real name, had a good job when she met her now ex-boyfriend. From the start, he tried to sabotage her ability to work. He'd sort of blackmail me by saying, you know, I don't want you going into work, I'm not feeling well, just spend time with me. Zara's ex had a problem with her spending time with her male colleagues. And eventually, he convinced her not to renew her contract. He, um, he really did not want me to work or go ahead with finding new roles. Her ex did this with uni too. Eventually, Zara deferred. He was really controlling from what I was wearing to what I was eating to what I was spending my money on and who I'm interacting with 24-7. Zara insisted on working. She kept scoring job interviews, which her ex found a way to derail. He'd insist on driving her to the interviews and would pick fights and sit in the waiting room while she spoke to potential employers. He'd put me in a really negative mood, very emotional state. Like Lucy's ex, controlling finances and Zara's ability to work was just one tool of abuse. He would physically abuse me, verbally abuse me. When it got worse and I'd come home with bruises and I'd have to lie about it with my family. Even worse, Zara disclosed the abuse to her ex's sister and she brushed it off as normal. This is how relationships are, you know, it's okay. He, it just means he loves and cares for you. That's really interesting going into schools and having these conversations around what's normal, what's considered normal and in terms of dating even. Hayley Foster is the head of domestic violence advocacy and support group Full Stop Australia. She says ideas about who's better with money and who should be the breadwinner in relationships start at a really young age. There are still really problematic attitudes out, out there around who should be in control of the finances, who is, is better at it and more competent and who can be trusted. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Maduro with that story. And hey, if that has raised any issues for you, you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. To talk a little bit more about these kinds of relationships and what you can do to get out or steer clear, we've got Elizabeth Shaw with us from Relationships Australia. Hey, Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. It's really concerning to hear how many women, one in six and even one in 13 men, have experienced financial abuse. Does that surprise you? Well, sadly, no, it doesn't at all. It is remarkably common. And because um, it's not understood as a form of coercive control or, or abuse, then it can be quite a neglected conversation, hard to raise, sort of unclear well, am I even reading this right? Are they being protective or, you know, is it about who's better at it rather than, no, this is actually being controlling. So what can young people do to get out of these relationships safely? 
Well, I think first of all, um, it's it's kind of looking after your own morale and self-esteem in the first instance. So I think you've got to you've got to have points of reflection to say, well, how do I read this behaviour? It makes me uncomfortable, but um, how do I know I'm right? I think you need some people around you who say, you know what, listen to your intuition. And that's not easy to find. Sometimes people have to go out outside their network of friends and, and family to get that. Um, so, you know, the first thing to do is to get really solid in yourself that you're on the right track. And if you do have some vulnerabilities about I'm afraid of being alone or I'm afraid that they'll turn my friends against me or, you know, some of those fears often have to be resolved. Um, it certainly is true that in some cases... Um, trying to challenge things too openly can lead to an escalation in violent behaviour. For many people, it might stop at this controlling level, but for some people, it may escalate. So it's good to have a safety plan in place as well. That's interesting. And where should people go, Elizabeth, if they if they do need some help? Well, I think certainly in the first instance, ringing one eight hundred respect is a really good place to start to just say, "Am I reading this?" You know, in a way that sort of makes sense. Absolutely coming to Relationships Australia to start to um, look at what's going on. If you do want to salvage the relationship, uh, talking to someone together um, with another professional pair of eyes who can kind of spot what you're talking about and get the difficult conversations on the table and properly aired, um, that's also a very very useful thing to do. I think Full Stop Australia is also a very good organisation. There are many touch points. I think it's about letting yourself access them you just can get some information and ask questions to start with. You don't need to be ready to make a decision to access service. It's okay to just be sorting it out in your own mind. I appreciate all of that insight. Elizabeth Shaw, CEO of Relationships Australia, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. It's a pleasure, thanks. We've got a lot of messages coming through on this one. Someone says, it is so hard to talk about. I'm fairly certain the person I know who's financially abused won't believe it, even though her boyfriend made her buy his car off him so he could buy another car. Like, crazy stories. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple J.